This is the Deep Color podcast series. Deep Color is an oral history project that features artists and arts professionals discussing their work, ideas, and lives, offering listeners a forthright and unique understanding about the process, experiences, and people behind the artistic pursuit. My name is Joseph Hart. I produce and facilitate this series. These recordings are casual, long form, and unscripted. Deep Color is supported by the New Art Dealers Alliance. NADA is the definitive nonprofit arts organization dedicated to the cultivation, support, and advancement of new voices in contemporary art. NADA's 2019 summer programming includes NADA House, an off-site exhibition on Governor's Island in New York City. The exhibit features presentations by 45 artists from NADA member galleries and nonprofits installed in three historic turn-of-the-century colonial revival houses. The collaborative public exhibition will be on view every weekend through August 4th, 2019. To learn more, visit newartdealers.org. This episode profiles Heather Hubs. Heather is the executive director of the New Art Dealers Alliance, a nonprofit membership organization for art galleries and alternative art spaces. Prior to NADA, Hubs worked at Sotheby's and Rona Hoffman Gallery in Chicago and was Associate Director of Art Chicago from 2000 to 2004. In 2001, she instituted the International Invitational, a special section at Art Chicago focused on highlighting emerging and international contemporary art galleries. She also established the Stray Show in association with local alternative spaces and their directors. In October of 2004, she became the director of the New Art Dealers Alliance. This year, NADA will have its 17th edition of its Miami Fair, a new fair in Chicago in September of 2019, along with other unique opportunities for its member galleries, such as the New York Gallery Open and NADA House on Governor's Island. We recorded this conversation at the NADA offices in downtown Manhattan. So, you know, it's, we're here to sort of discuss NADA and your role there, but I thought before we get to that, it would be interesting uh, to learn about your professional trajectory and perhaps how you landed in the director's chair of NADA. Can you share a little bit about your experience with art and how, how you got involved in the world of contemporary art? Yeah, I mean, I, I, as a kid, I always liked art and enjoyed drawing, but I kind of had this thing down where I would draw I grew up on I grew up in the dunes in northwest Indiana on Lake Michigan and um, spent a lot of time on the beach and the you can see the skyline of Chicago across the lake and I was obsessed with that skyline and watching the sun over there so I used to make these drawings of the sun setting over the skyline of Chicago and I would make that same drawing over and over and over again and try to sell it to my neighbors for 10 cents <laughs> I have no idea what put that in my mind, to be honest, like to do that. I, I think it was that it was like that sunset and then like flowers. I drew flowers. Were you adding color or was it like a pencil oh, yeah. drawing? It was, yeah. it was like with crayons. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I, my dad liked that I was doing that. And I think I just felt like, oh, my dad likes this. So I could, she'd keep doing it or something. But I just, yeah, always had an interest in art. And growing up near Chicago, we would go into the city a lot and, um, my best friend growing up, she also was a fan and was interested and her parents were both professors and they took us to the art institute quite a bit when we were younger and in high school. So that just sort of, you know, of course I started loving the impressionists and um, kind of was really more interested in that kind of era of, 
of the art world for a long time. And then when I was in college, I, when I went to school, I wanted to be an art major. And my parents, of course, were like, you're never going to make any money doing that. Right. That, you know, you're that very, conversation. You're yeah. very good at science. You should do something of that. You can't make money as an artist. No. Yeah. Um, so I was a chemistry major for the first two years of, of college, and then I switched majors. And when I switched, I didn't have time to get a BFA, so I decided just to study art history. Oh, okay. And um, I went to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and they had some really amazing art history courses that cross-listed with women's studies. And I took a few of those and they were, um, they were fascinating to me. They like really opened up my world. And uh, um, I remember two specific professors that talked a lot about contemporary art. And that was probably my first experience really learning about contemporary art in the, in the moment. Sure. And uh, that from that moment on, I just became, you know, this was like I was going to figure out a way to work in this world. Right. And and did you, I guess, uh, continuing that thread on working in this world, where did you get involved with curation or working in the gallery in some some capacity? I mean, what was your what was your um, entry into it? Um, it was uh, actually after I graduated from college, I didn't have a job, so I moved with my boyfriend at the time to Lexington, Kentucky. And I worked in a hospital in the Department of Pediatrics in the Division of Neonatology for a year and a half. Wow. And, you know, I had a good time in Lexington. It was fun. And we had great friends there. And, you know, a lot of them were musicians and artists themselves. But I I just was like, I can't, I have to like try to do something with my degree. So through a friend of the family, I I got an internship at Sotheby's in Chicago. Oh, okay. So I moved back to the Midwest and um, did an unpaid internship for nine months with Sotheby's and in Chicago. And I worked under Helen Goldenberg, who's a, a a VP of Contemporary there, who was amazing. And that basically led me to this career path. I, you know, was at Sotheby's for the internship. I stayed on a little bit longer than my internship. And then someone who at Sotheby's actually mentioned to me that there was an art fair in Chicago and she was like, you should check it out. You Mm -hmm. might love it. Mm -hmm. I'd never heard of an art fair. I didn't know what that was. There weren't very many back then, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So through her, I got a job just temp working at the art fair. And that job led me to a job working for Rona Hoffman Gallery in Chicago for two years, um, which was great. And I learned an incredible amount from her in that short amount of time, but I did really like the fair environment. Right. Um, yeah. I I imagine that the internship at Sotheby's must've been a kind of a crash course in how the market works in in a lot of ways. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was fascinating. Yeah. And one great thing about working in that, in the Chicago office was it was small. So they, covered everything it wasn't just contemporary or just like you got to see anything that came through the office or that was being um sold through chicago or the nearby area you kind of got your hands on because you it had to go through that office right right yeah i also think it's important you mentioning not knowing what an art fair was you know it's i still today i'll tell people that i'm going to this art fair or i have work in this art fair or i'm doing this project at this art fair and some of my family or friends will be like oh 
there's an art fair on the beach over, you know, um, you know, out on Cape Cod. You should go check that one out. And I'm like, yeah, those are awesome. And, <laughs> and, and truthfully, I love those. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the contemporary art fair is, is a completely different thing. Well, let's shift into that. So was it 2004 that you, you took over at NADA? Is that accurate? Yeah, that's when I came on board to help produce the fair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe we could tell listeners um, uh, like a broad stroke history. The NADA was founded by four dealers, um, Sherry Pascarella, Zach Foyer, Zach Miner, and John Connolly. It was uh, Sherry's idea to start a gallery association and she asked the Zach, Zach, and John to co-found with her. And they started out very casually. And that was in 2002. Um, and they, you know, it, the, an art fair was never a part of the conversation until later when Basel came along and was, was great and people wanted an alternative down there. And then I think members were sort of saying we should do something, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I, I actually was working for Tom Blackman in Chicago at that time. And some of the members reached out to me and said, Tom should do something in Miami. And Tom, I, so I wrote back and said, you know, a lot of these Nada galleries are interested in something in Miami and he didn't have any interest in that. So they decided to do it themselves basically. Right, right. Um, but I do think, I do like to point out that, that the association was not founded with an art fair in mind. It was really about, community and sharing resources and right. supporting each other right in a, in a, in a very collaborative way um, right. and it seems like that the fair aspect of the organization was it designed sort of in reaction to the vibe at some of the bigger fairs you know was it a response to sort of the the, the behemoth that these other things were becoming I think so yeah yeah I know that the founders were very they 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 really wanted it to be a grassroots effort sure. and and wanted it didn't you know specifically didn't have a VIP program in the beginning and and for very good reasons um and i think although that stuff has changed not that since not that long ago actually um i feel like that energy is still there right um let's touch on the curatorial vision can you talk about what your criteria is for for putting a fair together in terms of the type of presentations you want galleries to put in or what you're looking for in their applications for these fairs is there is there anything there that we can latch on to conversationally i well it's not just me sure. right we have a committee that that looks at all these things and i try to make it as international as possible right so they're looking for that for sure people love solo projects that just as always kind of a bold thing to do. They appreciate, you know, when it, when booths proposals are look considered. Sure. And not just, here's my gallery program. I mean, I think when you're David Zorner, you can do that. Right. Um, and you don't always have a lot of that, those things in front of you, right? Sure. You, sometimes you don't get a lot of international things and then you're sort of balancing that in a different way. They also, you know, try not to make a fair that's all painting or right a nice mix of of medium and yeah. approach yeah. yeah uh from where i sit too it seems you know you mentioned david's werner nada isn't necessarily for a gallery like that you're or is it i mean is does nada sort of lean more towards a, a gallery that might be starting out or you know the gallery system is sort of tiered is it you know, like where where within that sort of range of type of galleries 
are you are you looking for that sweet spot or is it kind of open season we always ask ourselves like how do we continue to remain relevant to our members no at right. no matter where they are in their level of development sure and it's a i don't think we're ever going to have an answer to that but we constantly ask that question and the fair i feel for some people who are you know further along in their um gallery career still find it their place to be and right. other people feel like they need to move on to to the bigger fairs and that's fine too so we i don't think that it's really specifically for one type of gallery however i do think that given our history and our platform you know younger galleries do find yeah and you're a non-profit and we're not which is an important piece in all of this too i think i think True. that like creates a spirit yeah and um is an important part of the fair's identity or the organization's identity which which i think is attractive to a lot of people certain types of people it's also you mentioned it's a membership um can you talk a little bit about how membership works now um who can be a member, how you how to become a member, and then once you are a member, what the benefits of that are? Sure. So we have three levels. Well, essentially, four. we have a gallery-level membership, we have a individual level, and a nonprofit. Um, and galleries, uh, the gallery, gallery membership is by application. It's a pretty simple application, just some information about your gallery, why you want to be a member, and you need two, recommendation, two letters of recommendation from current members. Sure. Um, and then we have a membership and programming committee who reviews those applications and says yay or nay. We really don't turn people away unless there's some pretty big ethical problem right. that we happen They're to know. They're overtly evil or something exactly. like that. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, or if it's just like for whatever reason, completely not a good fit. Sure, sure. But individual membership is pretty much you just sign up. And nonprofit membership is sort of the same as galleries. It's just they have a different rate to pay they're less it's less money mm -hmm. um and the benefits are range from you know panels and workshops about how to run a gallery and kind of dry stuff like about insurance and shipping right. to social events dry but important stuff exactly exactly <laughs> yeah. in, in fact like our international shipping um workshops happen to be like really packed sure yeah, yeah. those laws are always changing and, yeah 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 um and then you know, to like our membership cards get at, give some, give members access to certain institutions, right. and yeah. And so. you you also um, organize and facilitate studio visits for members. You can you can sign up, and uh, someone from the organization takes takes you to a stu uh, an artist studio who otherwise you might not know their work or be able to get into their studio, which I think is another kind of yeah. great thing. We do a lot of curator led. Um, tours of institutional shows too. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So you know, kind of continuing this this angle on the sort of public programming that NADA does. You know, we're we're here to celebrate and talk about NADA House, and it's this public exhibition out on Governor's Island, which is just south of Manhattan here in New York City. I think it's like what four hundred yards from from the end of Manhattan or something like that. That sounds about right. It's drastically close. It's really close. Um, yeah. But yet we we take a ferry to get there. Um, can you talk about how not a house became an idea and then a reality and, and then, um, yeah, I guess let's just start there. Um, yeah, well, Shane Brennan, who works for the trust, uh, on the Island approached me, uh, you know, last about two years ago and, and invited me out to come and look around and see what they had available and just to sort of explore whether or not there'd be something there that would be 
good for nada to to experiment with and so we went out and looked at a lot of spaces and decided to give it a try so last year we did um an exhibition in one house on colonel's row kind of as a tester just to, you know i mean first of all governor's island is an incredible setting yeah and the island is for to me fascinating i'm like a little obsessed with it is and- it a state park do you know its classification? I actually don't know. It's either a state or city park, I, I think, designated right now. Or the city's f- uh, taking care of it. Or is the trust? The trust takes okay. care of it. I think um, I think what happened was Jimmy Carter gifted it to the city. Okay. And then... Because it used to be a Coast Guard base. Exactly. Yeah. And that the reason it's in some dis- disrepair is that when the Coast Guard decided it was leaving, they just left. Yeah. They just walked out and turned off everything and... It sat there empty, frozen for 10 years, sadly. Um, so, and, and then it's gorgeous. I mean, we should like, so it, it feels like, um, uh, like a, like a turn of the century college campus in a lot of ways, big, beautiful brick buildings, wonderful old revival houses that captains and their families used to live in. Um, and then more like seventies, eighties style architecture with that look like roadside motels in the mix. I mean, it's really sort right. of this strange you know architectural landscape um but then on the more contemporary side the trust or uh, you know whoever's taking care of has done all these sort of modern renovations with landscaping and uh like climbing structures for people to like there's a hammock park there's a hammock park there's a slide mountain for kids there's glamping now out there there's a whole food scene yeah you can rent bikes and yeah. tour it around. So it's really turned into this sort of, um, well, I, I, you know, seasonal sort of destination. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and not as in the middle of it right now. Yeah. And we, so the experience last year was great. And we just, we, we did a month last summer and thought that that was great, but realized a month was really short. So we put in an application this year to do a longer um, show for over in an expanded format with more space. And, um, that's how we ended up with what we have this year. We were hoping to have it up the entire season. We wanted to, to have the houses from May through the end of October, but they, um, which is great. The, the trust received so many strong applications for projects in the houses that they decided to split it into two seasons. Sure. sure. And, uh, you know, we should mention that there's 45, presentations by different artists uh, in their galleries and nonprofits in Nada House. Um, and they range from uh, presentations of paintings to video work to sculptural work. I mean, how do you, were you excited by what, how artists responded to this idea? Uh, you know, what, what, um, what was, what's your sort of reaction to when you got to see the installations? Oh, I thought I was super excited. I mean, looking at the proposals was exciting. See, yeah. I mean, we, we actually had, others that we wanted to include we just didn't have the space but there were so many good projects and really surprised I was surprised at how many artists responded to the island and the history of the island yeah. and and responded to it so well yeah that was part of the application you know you you, you nudged um, artists to consider the history right. the architecture the space and, right and to try and you know um, form their um, application around that yeah I mean I guess because it's sort of hard to avoid the yeah. history when you're yeah. out there you yeah. know yeah and e- even the space too like when we when when I went on the the site tour you know you, you you got to see firsthand the sort of neglect which was this wonderful paradox of beauty and decay like you know those like sort of 
forgotten spaces, but you kind of like that they've been forgotten because they have this patina and this sort of spookiness to them. Right. Um, and that was something I really responded to. Right. Um, so that was really great. The other interesting thing I want to mention real quick is telling, you know, friends and colleagues about this project. Like, yeah, I'm doing this project for not a house. And they, their response would be like, well, if it's not a house, what is it? Uh-huh. You know, this like sort of play on yeah. words is kind of nice. And then, of course, not a translating in Spanish to nothing. I've always liked that poetry with the name of the organization. So yeah. I thought that was kind of clever. Yeah, we, I liked not a house. I mean, it was hard to pick a name. I'm just going to say this yeah. quickly, too. But I liked it because it kind of reminded me of like, women's house you know like yeah. something from the 70s yeah 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 it, I, I think it fits it's great lots of references yeah let's talk about one of the presentations out there um and i i was excited to to see creative growth the arts organization that's based in oakland um also a nonprofit, showcasing one of the artists that they work with uh and they and they showed work by tony piedemont can you talk about creative growth and and perhaps we maybe we can just describe tony's work um, yeah, Creative Growth is also a nonprofit arts organization based in Oakland, California, and they um, provide arts direction, I suppose is one way of saying it, to mentally disabled people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've been hugely successful with this work, and they've um, kind of transformed not only the lives of some of these people, but the way this work is viewed by people all over the world. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and Tony's work is in, I think, in a sunroom. Exactly. Um, and maybe we should back up, like, each artist has, like, a different room in these residential homes. It's like, a, you know, some people have their work set up in a, in, in, in a living room. Others are in a kitchen. Others are in a, what may have been a bedroom or something. I think Tony's work is in a sunroom. I mean, because there's three walls of windows. And he's been making work where he's taking objects. And in this case, I think, if I remember correctly like a chair and wrapping it in different yarn and string um, and then sticking little found objects in it. And I really appreciated not only the form and the aesthetic of them, they're lovely, but, you know, I started to think about domesticity and, and you know, these like furniture-like objects in this residential space that's hosting a bunch of contemporary art that mostly isn't functioning objects. Right. And, and then he's like sort of, you know, putting these objects that kind of reference furniture and are pieces of furniture, but also just like wonderful sculptures. Uh, I thought it was a really strong presentation. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful. Let's pivot back to to fairs. My introduction to Nada as an artist was when the fairs started percolating. Um, down in Miami, was that where the first one was? Yeah, um, Miami. And then they've been in New York, and I know you have one coming up in Chicago. But talk about where Nada slides in with the, within the landscape of the contemporary art fair, especially as a nonprofit within this, what I would describe a very for-profit section of the industry. Where do you see Nada relative to some of these other fairs that are, that are um, happening year-round now? Yeah. I mean, I, I like to think of Nada as, as an, just an alternative, you know, not, I, not necessarily a stepping stone or you know, the satellite, I, I just like to refer to it as a, as an alternative because I feel like that's is pretty much what we offer. Right. Carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that I think about and, and maybe, maybe people within the art fair industry or your colleagues talk about this too, but this, the carbon footprint of these fairs, um, I read somewhere that, uh, you know, a round trip flight from New York city to, 
London melts 32 square feet of polar ice. Oh my gosh. Which is nuts, That's right? That's crazy. Um, and you know, the art, contemporary art world is a global thing. Mm-hmm. People and objects are traveling the world at all times. Is there any discussion on how to address that with, with the, I mean, things have to move, right? But I'm just wondering if there's any sort of dialogue around this topic. Um, I have not had this dialogue around it in terms of travel, right? but in terms of producing the fair and the um, materials and um, equipment and things like that that go into producing it and putting it up, we definitely talk about it that way. Yeah, I imagine there's, there's yeah, choices that can be made on, on the like production level that can lessen that. But yeah, I don't know what the solution is until we can figure out how to... to um, uh, you know, do st- a Star Trek maneuver and zap ourselves in our objects somewhere. I mean, these, these things have to move around. Right, um, right. I don't know. I think it's a, it's a topic maybe we should all be thinking about a bit more. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, we've we there were times when we had to rent carpet for the fair, and yeah. I know that, that we, you know, we rented the carpet from a place that took the carpet back and cleaned it and reused it. Right. They didn't just throw it away, which was good. You know, um, but it still had to get there. Yeah, right. And the walls we use are reused. Right. You know, they don't get tossed out afterwards. They get refurbished and reused. So that's good. But again, they have to travel. So. Yeah. And I know, I know galleries, um, depending on what art handling company they use, will, for lack of a better term, carpool um, uh-huh. and load up a truck. And I think that's a good way to go yeah, about it too. You sure. know, I'll, I'll share a quick story, which is, I think, why this idea stuck in my head. You know, my my paintings have traveled from New York down to Miami for Nada, um, for the fair, um, to be thankfully bought by someone, but that lives in New York, and the work comes all the way back to New right, York. Good so, point. like, I'm wondering, like, it, that doesn't feel right. Like, there's got to right. be a, some some better solution to that. Anyways, yeah. I don't yeah. know what it is though. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, I mean, pe- it's true. Like people do crazy things. I, I remember one year at Art Chicago, there was a gallery that had a painting in their booth and a collector in Chicago loved it. And it, the gallery was from New York. And they they had the painting removed from the booth, taken to their home, hung in their home so they could see it in their home. And then back to the fair. And then they decided, they said, to, they came back to the fair and they said to the gallery, We'll come see it in New York. Yeah. I mean, it was it was crazy. Yeah. The whole thing. I mean, that was a long time ago, but still, I mean, I, I that whole thing was. I mean, they had it inside their house. It wasn't even like they just went to the booth yeah. at the fair. You know, I, I imagine part of your job is is developing and maintaining relationships with galleries, with artists, with with collectors and patrons, with funders, with other nonprofits and potential partners. Um, so you, you, you have a great sense of the ecosystem and the marketplace and how important relationships are within them. From your point of view, what, what do you think a gallery can do these days to succeed? And, and, I'll, and I'll quantify succeed by, by meaning stay open. Um, because, you know, we always are hearing about galleries shuttering, um, or shrinking, you know, which is, you know, part of the natural life cycle of any sort of um, industry and economy. But but do you have any suggestions for how galleries can stay healthy and and keep their doors open? I have some thoughts. I'm, you know, I never owned my own gallery. So I don't want to act like I have 
some sort of like professional, oh, no, no, you know, course, like direct experience with this. But I, I mean, I, I do think that, um, you know, find, you have to find a balance between being modest with your, you know, expenses and your overhead, but also being able to m- know when you need to make that choice to, to spend money on something that to invest in something. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, um, and this, this is not to say that people like gallery owners don't do this, but I, I think, you know, being able, but corresponding, like, you know, the, the being that your communication skills, I mean, the, the better they are, the, the probably the better that you'll do. Sure. Um, I've tried to buy artwork from galleries that I just literally can't get an invoice from. Right. So just that sort of like organizational standard, maybe. Yeah. And yeah. It, you know, it's hard to say, to know like what that's about, right, you know? Right. Um, but, and I, that, maybe they just don't want to sell to me, you know, right, I don't know. Right. But, but I don't think that that's always the case. No, no. I mean, as an artist that, that works with different types of galleries. Yeah. I notice that difference too. When, when someone's more disorganized than another. And I'm just like, a little professionalism can go a long way in these situations. So yeah, I think that's maybe what we're talking and about. I, and again, like not, it's not to say that the galleries that have closed is because they were disorganized. I think that it's also a personal choice. At sure. some point, I think people just make a decision that they're ready to stop um, for whatever reason. And it's hard to know what those, what goes into those decisions because I'm sure there's so many personal oh, things course. that come into it because at the end of the day, owning and running a gallery is a very personal thing. Yeah. What about artists? You know, uh, we're speaking about galleries uh, keeping their doors open. What about artists and and making sure that they can keep making work? You know, they they need each other, galleries and yeah. artists, at least in the marketplace. Um, do you have any suggestions for artists on how to keep making work and 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 not get too disheartened by the world, current events? Um, how the market can swallow people or, or be gated and not let you in. Right. Um, I don't know. What would you, what, what sort of suggestions did you have for artists? I mean, I would, I guess I would hope that their practice provides some sort of a, an outlet for any frustration that you may be feeling for with the world or with the system of gallery system or whatever it is. Amen. Um, I would hope, you know. No, no, I say yeah. amen because that's very much what it is for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's great. I mean, I, I've, I've always been a little envious of artists to ha- that they have that sort of ability to, I mean, I I could pick up a hobby, right? And sure. I could like figure that out myself. Um, but I do think that artists have a special way or a, a special ability to, to do that. And, and if you're lucky enough to then also have a gallery that's, that can put this up, then you also get you, this extra kind of added benefit of knowing that people are seeing the work, which is, I would imagine a very powerful thing. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we make this to share it, to get it out there, to engage a viewer. Yeah. I mean, I think making art, a lot of it for a lot of us is some form of self care. And that's sort of what you're talking about in the beginning there. You know, as we talk about artists here, you know, I think one of the great things about NADA is its reputation as an artist's art fair. Artists like NADA. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's one of the great things. You know, NADA has this identity. What do you think led to that? How did how did NADA achieve this reputation? That's a good question. I, I, I wonder 
if it's because so many artists have kind of come through the fair and the galleries that are part of it. And when, you know, the more, the bigger fairs and the more established fairs that have been around longer, those, most of those galleries and those artists are older and the community's just different. Yeah. So I think we've had this added benefit of growing up together. Yeah. You kind of came of age in the early aughts. Right. Which I would never have that forethought. I don't know that I would have even had that given that answer four years ago, but now being a little older and having, and seeing, you know, even now and like another generation of artists come through and, and more and more people knowing about the organization and knowing about the fair and what we do just gives me a completely different perspective on the whole thing. Yeah. Um, I've always been very comfortable at NADA, you know, and, and I'll just, just cite, like raise a little, um, um, trophy to the fairs that were at basketball city oh, here in New York. I, I really love those fairs. The they space was so, so cool. Like the height and the light and then like seeing the pulled up basketball hoops. Yeah. Um, and then all this wonderful art in the community down below. I mean, there's a spirit in the NADA fairs that I think, um, has captured something that some of these other fairs don't, which, yeah. so I, I salute you on that. Thank you. You know, on the other hand, not every artist is comfortable in an art fair. John Baldessari has a famous quote where he said that, uh, and I'll probably butcher it, but he said, you know, an artist visiting an art fair is similar to an, uh, a teenager walking in on their parents having sex. Oh my God. That's um, amazing. So I, this is my setup to ask you, like, if you have any suggestions for how artists can navigate this range of emotions and feelings, um, both good and bad as they walk through art fairs. I, I mean, take it with a grain of salt. I mean, it's, it, it's can be an obnoxious thing to witness. Um, and it can feel, I guess maybe very commercial, but at the end of the day, I guess it, you know, it's, it, I guess a necessary evil on some level, you know, I would, I would love it if art fairs could find a way to direct some of the energy that gets poured into the fair back to the gallery spaces. I mean, I think, I don't think anybody wants to see galleries disappear. And there are a lot, you know, a lot of forces out there that are just seem to be maybe, you know, hurting foot traffic Mm -hmm. and, I'm sure ga- artists feel way more comfortable walking into a gallery and seeing art, but somehow putting it all in one room with a bunch of people and done a bunch of like, you know, what probably looks like people competing against each other is right. just like pretty stressful. It's funny. Like, again, like I, I don't feel that cutthroat competition when I'm at a not affair, which is another sort of nice thing. But yeah, I mean, I think it's Jerry Saltz that is, you know, when he gives lectures, he's always tell, telling artists to destroy envy. Um, you know, I think that's one of these things that sort of gets in the way. It's this like, I should be there, not that person shouldn't be there. And I think, you know, in this time that we're living in, I think we need, all need to find ways to support each other more and more. So I think going to fairs with that sort of psychology um, is, is probably a good way to go about it too. Yeah. Um, I yeah. Ju- Just on... Do you know when that Baldessari quote is from? 
No, I'll look it up though. Because it just reminded me of um, something that Jerry Salt said to me in February in LA. He was out there for the Freeze LA Fair and he was having a really good time, I guess. And um, I ran into him and he was going on and on about how great everything was. But the first thing he said was, art and money just had sex in Los Angeles. Yeah. <laughs> Which might be what Baldessari is talking yeah, about. Those yeah, are the yeah. parents. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's just like an, another way of saying it's like you're seeing the sausage get made in a lot of ways. And I think artists, whether they like it or not, have a hard time. You know, they have to face the fact that this is a business. And sometimes that B word is is nasty, you know, because we have our punk roots and it's a hard, hard thing to sort of accept sometimes. Right. Yeah. Um, you, know, you mentioned like the, these factors that might be taking away from foot traffic. And I think at the front of the conversation, you talked about technology. You know, this is maybe a spot we can talk about how we consume images, whether it's the endless scroll on the phone, um, these, these online platforms for displaying or presenting artwork and potentially even selling it. Um, do you have a point of view on, on, on these things and how they might be affecting um, viewers and, and, and their willingness to actually stand in front of, of a work of art and really engage that, that, that sort of tried and true gaze of taking something in? Yeah, I, I don't think anybody was, you know, could foresee the impact that it would have, right? I mean, and it seems like a great thing. Like, let's give this art and the galleries that represent these artists, let's give them additional exposure and get them in front of more people. And like, that seems like an incredible idea. And there is benefits to that for sure. But I think, and this is simply just my opinion. I just think people are so distracted. Yeah. And I think back, like, I don't know what it would have been like if I had been growing up with all these platforms to look at art, like not just Instagram, but artsy art space, like all these people are all these websites that put our art out there for sale but and then on top of that Instagram and every gallery having an Instagram I don't know what it would feel like to grow up with all that yeah that is the norm that's the norm yeah so I could see how if you're younger and you love art and you love looking at art and looking at it online is so easy I, I do people I mean who's learning about galleries who's yeah. learning that these 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 institutions these cultural incubators are around and free and exist everywhere and they do amazing programming all year. Like it's sad to me that, I mean, I'm hoping that people know about it. I just, I don't know cause mm -hmm. I'm not that young anymore and yeah. I don't have a teenager yet, but I'm hoping that somehow that message is coming across. Yeah, that I agree. I agree. Yeah. It's like an education thing in a lot of ways. I was talking to someone, I think at not a house about, um, you know, for someone like me that was born in the seventies and, the internet sort of came of age and became a thing in the late nineties, early two thousand, at least like across the board. Right. It was like, uh, uh, sort of mainstream, sort of mainstream at that point. Um, so I've had one foot in without it and one foot in with it. So I sort of, I remember what it was like pre internet, pre cell phone, pre, you know, images at the touch of a thumb. Um, yeah, I don't know what it would be like to grow up now. It's, it's really kind of abstract to me. It's abstract. Yeah, yeah. So at the end here, what's on the horizon for NADA? What do you have, what what does the organization have coming up? I know there's the fair in Chicago you all are working on. Is is there anything else you want to sort of plug at the end here? 
Yeah, so we're going to be doing uh, our first iteration of a fair in Chicago. It's called the Chicago Invitational. It's at the Chicago Athletic Association on Michigan Avenue, right across the street from the Art Institute. It will be um, from September 18th through the 21st, coinciding with Expo Chicago Mm -hmm. and also the Chicago Architectural Biennial. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're, you know, it's a small show, probably around 35 galleries. And it's going to be a mixture of hotel room um, exhibition space and booth space. Right. So it'll be kind of a fun mix of nice both mix. environments. And I understand that one of the one of the rooms you'll be exhibiting in used to be a pool that they've tiled over, and there's like this really great tile work around. So yeah. It sounds like a really cool space. Yeah. 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 Um, and I imagine that's nice as someone that sort of grew up with Chicago in the landscape in a way. Yeah. Are, are you spent and you sort of? figured things out professionally in Chicago. Yeah. It must be nice to go back there and put on a project. Yeah, yeah I'm excited yeah. about that. Going, It's kind of like going home. Ex- excellent. Well, Heather, this has been great. I really appreciate you sitting down and talking with me. And uh, maybe we'll see each other out at Governor's Island at Nauta House sometime before the end of August, or beginning of August, right? Yeah, August 4th. beginning of August. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, yeah. Heather. That'd be great. We've made it to the end. A quick reminder that Deep Color is independently produced and a free resource for listeners. Help support and sustain this project by making a donation online at deepcolorpodcast.com. You can also learn more about each contributing artist, find links to their online portfolios, and access the archive of past recordings. Be sure to share this project within your community and subscribe and rate in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for listening, and check back soon for a new episode.